Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, City Councilmember Rory Lansman, Chair of the Committee on the Justice System, and a Brooklyn look at the legacy of Malcolm X. Hi, I'm Jared Murphy, and today for Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us. Lots in the news over the weekend. Momentum on gun control? Possibly, thanks mostly to the high school kids protesting what happened in Florida. Momentum on finally dealing with the Russian threat to our elections? Not so fast. Yes, there were indictments. Yes, the National Security Advisor said the evidence was incontrovertible. But our muscular president went a little flaccid on the Russians, instead attacking the FBI and members of Congress. And he also said, I'm not a crook. Or I mean, no collusion. Lost in this was a story about press tours to see refurbishments being made at the prison camps at Guantanamo, which is once again open for indefinite detentions. And yes, there are vacancies due to all those detainees who were released by President Obama. 44 had to know as he was leaving office that leaving Guantanamo open was leaving important work undone. Speaking of jails that have lived long past their expiration dates, Rikers Island is slouching toward extinction. Will it really happen? Will it happen fast enough? We're going to talk today with a city council member who'll give us some insight. And we'll also have a conversation with the Brooklyn Historical Society's oral historian to talk about the influence on Brooklyn of Malcolm X. But first, these things. He finally made it official. Brooklyn City Councilmember Jumani Williams announced he will indeed be running for lieutenant governor of New York, challenging the incumbent Kathy Hochul in the primary in September. Making the announcement from the city hall steps on Friday, Williams promised to be the people's advocate in Albany. He spoke last month on this show of his interest in expanding the office and bringing more diversity to the statehouse. The MTA has announced it will add ferry service to help Brooklynites commute when the L train is shut down for repairs beginning in January 2019. The shutdown is expected to last 18 months, and many have been calling it the L-pocalypse. That sounds about right. Add thousands of units of housing to Williamsburg, lure people there with the proximity to Manhattan, and then cut off their main artery. Well, the ferry might mitigate some of the expected chaos, though some have done the math and say that even with one ferry every seven minutes, it will be the equivalent of one L train per hour. Another proposal getting some attention, if not traction, a floating bridge. Stay tuned. And another headline about Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn's. This country is apparently blessed with 18 other places called Brooklyn, in case you've been wondering. Now those clever reality show makers have come up with a fun one called Brooklyn, USA. They want to have people from the original Brooklyn, that's ours, swap homes with folks from various American Brooklyns, starting with Mississippi. I'm sure hilarity and culture clash will ensue. And if not, you can bet the producers will make sure hilarity and culture clash will ensue. Stay tuned for Councilmember Lanceman. As of Monday, there were 9,148 people in city jails, most of them held on Rikers Island, a facility that the majority of city and state leaders say must close. Last week, the mayor took another step toward its closure, but his critics still say he's moving too slowly. Meanwhile, the Correction Officers Union is upset by the mayor's reaction to an attack by inmates on one of its members. Here to talk about the issues of crime and punishment that are on the city's plate is Rory Lansman, Queens Council member and chairman of the council's committee on the justice system. Welcome very much to 112BK, council member. Thank you for having me. Last week, Mayor de Blasio talked about four sites that he's designated in partnership with the council for alternative sites once Rikers moves toward closure three uh, facilities in Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan that currently have justice facilities that have to be adapted, new site in the Bronx. Is that a major step 
toward closing Rikers? How much closer are we now than we were two weeks ago? It is a significant step towards closing Rikers, and I have not been shy about giving the mayor a hard time on the pace of criminal justice reform issues, which I'm sure we will talk about. Um, but this was a significant step forward. There are two aspects to closing Rikers. One is significantly reducing the population at Rikers, which I think the mayor has been moving too slowly on, and we can talk about that. But the other part of it is, if we close Rikers, where are we going to put these inmates? The Lippman Commission report, which is a, a, a commission chaired by former uh, chief state judge uh, Jonathan Lippman and paneled by former council speaker Melissa Mark Riverito, um, identified um, uh, 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 locations, concepts, for where these local jails will go, basically in the same place where there are currently jails now, the Queen's House of Detention, the Brooklyn House of Detention, the Tombs in Manhattan, and then establishing a new jails in, in the Bronx and, and Staten Island. Uh, the mayor decided we're not doing a jail in Staten Island for political reasons, um, but starting the process, identifying the locations, and, and moving the ball forward on the location of the jails in the other four boroughs is a major step forward, and I do commend him for that. Do you think the Staten Island <clears throat> issue is a dead duck, or is that going to come up again in the process? Are you going to push the mayor? Are you going to push the mayor on that? No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think it's a mistake, and I don't think it has any basis in, in, in criminal justice policy or, or fairness. But you know, we live in, in the political reality in which we live. I have always been a true believer in not letting the uh, um, perfect be the enemy of, of the good. Uh, this is a good plan to move forward. Let's get going on these four locations. I know there's some questions about the, the location in the Bronx and maybe some local uh, politics or considerations that need to be, be worked through, but, but this is a positive step. For people in the borough of Brooklyn, uh, do we know what the plan means for the Brooklyn House? How many more inmates? What kind of changes to the physical layout, or is that still coming down the pipe? Well, well, that's still coming down the pike, but it's it's not a big mystery. I mean, in Brooklyn, like in Queens, has a house of detention. It has a, a jail. The one in Queens hasn't been used for a few years, but the one in Brooklyn is 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 being used. It's a matter of making it more modern, making it bigger, um, in a in a location where people have become used to there being a jail, and where the expansion of the current jail is supported by the local city council member, Steve Levin. So, honestly, uh, I would not expect the people of Brooklyn to notice much difference, if any at all, once this jail is, is, is built on the location where there currently is a jail. One interesting aspect of the mayor's announcement last week, the mayor and council's announcement, was that what will ensue now is a public process but one tying all four sites together, not individual Euler land use mm -hmm. application for each. So what, what will that look like, and what are you hoping as a representative of Queens to, to find out about the site there and these other sites? What are the questions in your mind about what the administration is planning? So the, the jail in Queens is maybe 1,000 feet from my district. It's in the district of Councilmember Karen Kosowitz, who was with the mayor at the announcement, if I'm not mistaken, but has already stated that she supports the the reopening, for all practical purposes, the reopening of the existing jail. What I expect through the ULERP process, having been a community board member for 16 years before I was elected to the Assembly and now the City Council, is an, an open and robust conversation amongst people in a, the affected communities about what will 
this plan mean for them? And, and that's appropriate, and it's the obligation of elected officials like myself to, to, to respond to those questions. I think certainly for the three locations where there already are jails, Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, the answer will be you're not going to notice much of anything at all except during the construction process. Um, for the folks in, in the Bronx, I think that they've got a lot of questions about uh, the, the site there being used as a jail, um, its impact on the community, and, and the context of there being a lot of facilities in that part of the Bronx that um, uh, are not the ones that most communities welcome in their neighborhoods. But that's a conversation for that community to have, and, and I know that the the chair of the Land Use Committee, uh, uh, Raphael Salamanca, from the Bronx, is, is in the neighboring district to the one— About 20 feet from it, actually. Yeah, yeah right. Is, is right there. So I expect that that, that, that process to be uh, a, a, a robust and open one, as it should be. You mentioned that closing Rikers means these alternative sites, but also getting the population down to where those sites become practical. Mm -hmm. And Mayor de Blasio has said really virtually since announcing that he supported closing Rikers about a year ago— that a lot of that is dependent on state action. And he mentioned in his State of the City, speedy trial, bail reform. Mm -hmm. Do you think those are, are insurmountable hurdles? Does the city need the state to do those, to move toward closing Rikers? And how likely do you think it is those reforms will happen at the state level? I think the mayor is overstating the importance of state action to reducing the population at Rikers to where it needs to be. The Libman Commission report laid out um, a, a blueprint for how we get from the population at the time that the report was issued to where we need to, to be, how we get from a, a jail-wide population of about 9,500 to under 5,000. And the bulk of that comes from vastly expanding supervised release, where people who would otherwise be sent to Rikers Island for small amounts of bail um, are instead released uh, into the community um, under different levels of supervision and, and, and monitoring, mo uh, monitoring. That is within the city's control. That is the, the, the largest component of reduction that we can um, have at Rikers Island. And what we really need to do is vastly expand our supervised release programs. Yes, the state needs to do some things also regarding parole, regarding speedy trial. Um, there are other things that the city uh, needs to do as well in terms of alternative to incarceration, alternative, alternative to detention programs. So, I don't know, off the top of my head, I'd say 10, 15 percent of the reduction that we need to get will come from state action, but the overwhelming majority comes from what is within the city's uh, uh, can control and should should act on. Do you think that eventually the expanded supervisory release will need to include people who are accused of violent crimes, not just, you know, broken windows crimes or small misdemeanors, but folks accused of more serious stuff? Right. So that, that's where the political difficulties arise. And, you know, the mayor needs to make some tough choices, which I think, you know, speaking for myself, just as an individual council member, um, the council is willing to back him up on. In order to get where we need to get to be able to reduce the population at Rikers um, so that we can close that horrible beast, we have to move beyond the low-hanging fruit. It, it's not just people who are arrested for low-level 
nonviolent quality of life offenses. We need to expand who is eligible for supervised release programs, who is eligible for an alternative to detention program, who is eligible for alternative to incarceration programs in a responsible way that that, but that does include a broader category of offenses that people are charged with, including um, certain uh, what we would technically call as violent offenses or certain uh, more serious felony offenses, which, which are not violent, but they might have a, a, a significant, you know, they might be a B felony or a C felony, which are, which are significant offenses under the law. So we've been talking a lot about Rikers, everyone's been talking a lot about Rikers, but it's not the only criminal justice issue on the city's plate, on the council's plate. The committee you're chairing now is, I believe, newly created or newly named. Uh, tell me about that and tell me what's, sure. on, what's on your plate besides, besides Rikers directly. So the committee that I chair is an evolution from the committee that I chaired in the last uh, council, which was the Committee on Courts and Legal Services. So we had previously overseen directly the court system, as well as the uh, legal services providers funded by the city. Those would be the public defenders, legal aid, who represent indigent, def indigent defendants, as well as the um, vastly increased uh, funding uh, for civil legal services, representing people who are facing eviction in housing court, for example. In addition, now that we, the, the new committee, we also directly oversee the district attorneys, uh, the five district attorneys, including the, and in addition, the uh, special narcotics prosecutor, um, as well as the mayor's office of criminal justice. So, in some way or another, my committee touches on, oversees, um, has some jurisdiction over almost every aspect of the criminal justice system, from soup to nuts. And we work in coordination with other committees in the council, which also uh, oversee some part of the the, the criminal justice system, and I, and I serve on all of those committees. You know, from start to finish, our criminal justice system is, um, is unfair, inequitable, does not deliver for the taxpayers the bang for the buck that we should expect, and ultimately doesn't keep us as safe as it should. My committee has held, in its previous iteration and, and going forward, has held um, hearings on the impact that broken windows policing has on our, on our courts, on the issue of bail, on ICE in the courthouse, and, and um, the intersection between immigration laws and, and the criminal laws as they're being apply, applied in, in New York City. We had a hearing on wrongful convictions. And uh, later this month, we are having a hearing on um, a somewhat uh, uh, nerdy topic. Of, oh, I love it. Let's, uh, hear, let's hear more. Um, discovery in the criminal process and what district attorneys are responsible for turning over to defend defendants and defense counsel prior to trial, uh, which um, the absence of a, a robust open discovery law in New York State that many feel, and we heard testimony to this effect, contributes to wrongful convictions in a significant way and is part of the governor's uh, Albany criminal justice reform agenda. And then the day before that, we are co-hosting a hearing <clears throat> led by the committee that oversees the police department on uh, the impact and status of the mayor's uh, um, uh, approach to marijuana arrests and prosecution. I think it was 2014, the mayor and commis then Commissioner Bratton announced that there was going to be a new policy toning down the intensity of marijuana possession enforcement. It was a common um, charge brought against people who were stopped and frisked and 
asked to uh, empty their pockets, and, and so, a, doing, the, and so doing, you know, crime, right? now they now they oh, have a, a marijuana joint that's out in the open. Um, there was a reduction in the number of arrests the first year the policy was in place, but the last two years they've been flat. And of course, like almost everything else in our criminal justice system, the uh, burden of that enforcement, the the the, um, the over policing, if you will falls most heavily in communities of color. So, so we're having a hearing on that that we're hosting with the Public Safety Committee um, that oversees the police department um, uh, later this month also. Uh, we only have about a minute left, so I want to ask about Rikers as it stands now, three years, ten years, however long it takes to close it. Violence on Rikers apparently has only been increasing. Uh, there was this recent attack, mm-hmm. apparently quoted attack on a, on a CO that the union is very upset about. Why do you think violence is increasing, and do you think the administration has done enough to combat it? Well, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, violence in many categories are increasing or have increased in, in, in Rikers Island. The administration has not um, taken the issue seriously enough and, and dedicated the resources uh, necessary. I will say as a, as a context that part of the reasons that Rikers is unsafe is because it is so poorly designed from another century, both literally and, and, and figuratively. And big part of the reason that we want to close Rikers and basically start fresh with smaller jails is so that it can be designed in a modern fashion to keep the correctional officers and the inmates themselves uh, safer. But I've served on the committee that oversees Rikers Island for the, for the four-plus years that I've been on the council. And honestly, the violence numbers have only gone in one direction, and that's the wrong direction. Rory Lasman, chairperson of the Council's Committee on the Justice System. Please schedule plenty of those nerdy hearings. We love them here. Thank you. We will. As we continue to feature conversations around Black History Month, we take a look at the impact on Brooklyn of one of the most storied black leaders in American history, Malcolm X. Wednesday is the 53rd anniversary of his assassination at the Audubon Ballroom in Washington Heights. But here in Brooklyn, his imprint goes far beyond the Bed-Stuy Boulevard that bears his name, which, incidentally, was renamed before the one in Manhattan. Here to tell us more about this history and this man who achieved larger-than-life status, both in life and in death, is the Brooklyn Historical Society oral historian Zahir Ali, a guest, by the way, on our inaugural show back in October. So welcome back to 112 Thank BK. you for having me. So Wednesday is the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X uh, in, in Washington Heights. Tell us about that day and sort of the context in which it occurred. So by that point in Malcolm's, you know, first of all, Malcolm's life went through so many evolutionary changes. Um, he began—he was born Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska. He uh, ended up having—he dropped out of school at a young age. He moved in to live with his sister in Boston. He became known as Detroit Red as a kind of hustler figure. He eventually went to prison. While in prison, his siblings introduced him to the teachings of the Nation of Islam. He converted and joined the movement. By the time he came out of prison in 1952, he took on the name Malcolm X, with the X replacing the surname or the slave name, as the believers in the Nation of Islam argued. 
And for 12 years uh, in the Nation of Islam, he rose as one of its leading organizers, its national spokesperson, um, probably its most public face and voice. Uh, and then in 1964, he left the Nation of Islam. And his leaving the Nation of Islam was under—it um, was under the—it was a bitter break uh, between him and the Nation of Islam. And then he moved towards uh, a more um, traditional expression of Islam. Uh, he continued evolving as a black nationalist. He be became more critical of capitalism. He traveled. He spent a lot of, of time in 1964 in Africa and the Middle East. Um, and he began building a new power base for himself, a new organization, or two new organizations, actually. Um, by February of 1965, though, all of the different forces that had been working either covertly or overtly against him seemed to converge. And that included uh, members of the Nation of Islam who were bitter about his break and his denunciation of Elijah Muhammad. It included members of the New York Police Department who had him under surveillance. It included members of the FBI. In 1964, J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover issued a memorandum to his New York office that said, quote, do something about Malcolm X. Um, so there were many people who were not happy with the direction that Malcolm was going in. And unfortunately, on February 21, 1965, while he was uh, beginning uh, a speech at the Audubon Ballroom, he was killed uh, by assassins. Uh, three members of the Nation of Islam were tried for that crime and found guilty. But many people believe, based on research and investigations, that um, the conspiracy to kill him was much bigger than, than the story that came out of that case. Before his death, his life, which you just told us about in, in summary, he strikes me as one of the more misunderstood figures, maybe the most misunderstood figure of the civil rights era. One of our producers found a quote from James Baldwin, who said of Malcolm X, uh, when the Israelis or the Poles pick up guns and say, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. But when a black man says exactly the same thing, he's judged a criminal and treated like one. We call him a black nationalist, and I think a lot of people don't understand what, right. what does that mean, and, and what did his philosophy by the end right. entail? I mean, so Malcolm embraced the very same principles that went into the founding of this nation, um, the principle of the social contract theory. That is, when a government that derives its power from the consent of the governed fails to perform its duties to protect the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of the governed, then the governed have a right to change the government. And so Malcolm's argument was, and his argument was—you know, he had evidence for his argument—was that the United States government had failed to protect the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of black people, of black Americans. And therefore, black Americans had a right to declare that social contract void. And just as the people who regard—we regard as patriots who founded this nation argued that they had the right to form a new government uh, that would, you know, abide by that social contract, Malcolm argued, well, then black people have the right 
to argue for a new government, and if not a new government, a new arrangement that ensured that black people's lives were protected. You know, this was a time when you could turn on the TV and see black children being attacked by police dogs, by fire hoses. And although this was part of the civil rights demonstrations, to Malcolm, this demonstrated the failure of the government. Uh, this was a time in 1964, when the, the U.S. Congress was debating the passage of the first Civil Rights Act. There were attempts to filibuster it. You know, this, to Malcolm and people who supported Malcolm, said, you know, this—the U.S. government has not demonstrated a will, has not demonstrated a character, has not demonstrated a conscience to protect the lives of all of its citizens. And so, it, do we wait for them to awaken, or do we just form uh, the institutions that we need to protect ourselves? And so, that's where he was coming from. So, his life ended in Manhattan. At the end of his life, he was a resident, I believe, of Queens. Yes. But there was a connection, a real connection, to Brooklyn. Oh, what did absolutely. That, what did that look like? Uh, Malcolm was wherever black people lived. <laughs> so um, he, as a member, as a minister of the Nation of Islam, his first home base was in Harlem. I mean, he lived in Queens, but his organizing base was in Harlem, which with the Harlem Mosque, which was called Mosque Number no. 7, was located. But the Nation of Islam had several satellite locations as well. There was a mosque called um, Seven. B, but which was in Queens. And in 1963, Malcolm opened, right here in Bed-Stuy, uh, Mosque 7C. Uh, but even before that opening of that mosque, the Nation of Islam and Malcolm had been holding meetings and giving talks as early as in the late 50s, 1959. They used to meet at the Mechanics Building on Putnam Avenue. They held events at Shiloh Presbyterian Church, which is this, uh, one of the oldest black churches in Brooklyn. It has its own kind of storied history as, you know, being part of the Underground Railroad, founded why, by an abolitionist. Why Bed-Stuy? Was this thing particular about the concentration Oh, yeah. Of, oh, of for sure. Um, Bed-Stuy, by the 1960s, was eclipsing Harlem as the kind of new black population center of New York City. In fact, in the decade that—between uh, the 50s and the 60s, I think the black population had doubled or tripled. And so, um, it was, you know, that plus the enhancements in public transportation kind of accelerated people moving and settling in Bed-Stuy and search for, for homes, better homes. And so, you know, this was a place um, to, uh, that was a fertile ground for the organizing uh, that Malcolm was doing. And there were other organizers. It was the, the Brooklyn chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. Uh, which was very active in central Brooklyn. So there was this kind of on the local ground, um, this cross-fertilization of these many different kind of activist organizations. People in Brooklyn were organizing. And so um, when Malcolm began meeting, holding meetings in Brooklyn, he kind of tapped into that energy. So at this moment in time, we're having a different conversation about race in the country. I mean, there are certainly similarities, but there are, there are new faults to it. And here in Bed-Stuy, talking about gentrification, talking about, um, you know, the, the local ethnic flavor and kind of racial claim to neighborhoods. What is Malcolm X's legacy for a young person of color in Brooklyn today, do you think? What can you extract that's really relevant to life here from what he talked about? I think there are a couple of things, right? Some of this is, is, is individual. Um, Malcolm's personal example is one of transformation. It's one of evolution. It's one of constant learning. It's one of constant uh, self-critical review. He was not afraid to correct—to say, I've changed my mind. He's not—he wasn't afraid to say some of the things I once believed I no longer believe. 
believe or some of the things I once thought I think are different or wrong or I have a better view right now. So there was a humility to his ability to say, like, I'm a different person. But the other thing that was more important or just as important was that Malcolm taught, you know, that we define our own existence. And there is this tendency to um, to pathologize black communities, um, to suggest that just the concentration of black people means that, you know, all of these negative things. And I think the reason why people do that, I think, sometimes is out of a good uh, intention to highlight the ways that concentrations, places where concentrations of African Americans live, are often denied equal access to important services or, or equal access to education and the kinds of resources that any community needs. And so that's a fair point to make. But Malcolm's other argument was that, you know, we define our own existence, we create our own spaces. Do not let other people define for you, you know, where you live. Do not let other people define for you who you are. Whatever people call you or call where you live, you should name it yourself. And I think that is one of the most important lessons we get from Malcolm X. And that's an excellent lesson to end the show on. Thank you very much, Sahir Ali from Brooklyn Historical Society. Hope we'll have you back for a third time on 112BK. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you. Now, tomorrow on 112BK, immigration activist Ravi Ragbir and his wife, Amy Gottlieb, talk about his potential deportation. And two brewers will let us taste some of their creations as we get ready for NYC Beer Week, starting on the 23rd. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Seaford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barkey, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack. Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSette. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.